I probably spend more time than I should on the websites of booksellers. My excuse for my addiction is that a large part of my calling is as a preacher and teacher. So I need to read a lot to do that well, right? At least that's what I tell myself. Anyway, um, I went to the website of a Christian book distributor and decided to see how many books there are with the word humble in the title. I got only 20 hits, and most of those weren't actually books. The book was called, uh, there was one book, it was called Humble Pie, and it was about the teachings of St. Benedict who lived in the 4th century. I did a bit better with humility. I got 24 hits, for 7 actual books. Then just for fun, I did a search on books with the word success in the title. 412 hits. And there weren't that many duplicates. So 50 times as many books on success as there are on humility. Now, assuming that the booksellers are simply catering to the market, it would appear that a lot of Christians are more interested in being successful. A lot more Christians are interested in being successful than they are in being humble, which is actually a little bit ironic. One of the most influential books amongst business leaders in the last 20 years has been one called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Collins and his team of researchers spent five years analyzing companies that had made the jump from just being good at what they did to being great at what they did. And when he looked at the leadership of these good to great companies, he identified two character qualities shared by all of their CEOs. The first one was no surprise, that these men and women all had incredible professional will. They were driven willing to endure anything to make their company a success. But the second thing that these leaders had in common was something that the researchers hadn't actually expected to find. All of these leaders were modest. They didn't draw attention to themselves. Instead, they celebrated the work of others on the team. Collins writes, the good to great leaders never wanted to become larger-than-life heroes. In another recent article about the leadership during the current coronavirus crisis, another expert on leadership said that great leaders in crises are people who A, trust people with the truth, B, give hope, which is not the same thing as optimism. Optimism, optimism is really cheap. Uh, optimism is you go, you know, like you say, it's going to be a great day today when there's 100 kilometers an hour winds outside and you're in the path of a hurricane. Hope says, it's going to be a tough day today. Some of us might lose our homes, but we can come together and build our community back to be better than it was. That's the difference between hope and optimism. So, leaders trust people with the truth. They give hope. And they're humble enough to say they don't know when they don't know. So it actually appear that the way to success runs along the path of humility. So this is the second message in our series, Living from the Inside Out. Last week, we talked about holiness under the title, Living with God. And this week, today, we're going to be looking at humility, living with yourself. Now, I said that the path, the way to success runs along the path of humility. And in Philippians 2, Paul paints a picture for us of Jesus walking down that path 
on his way to the cross. But before he talks about Jesus' path of humility, he says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So we're going to take some time this morning uh, to find out what humility looks like in the life of Jesus and see about how we might be able to cultivate that in our own lives. But before we do that, let's talk first about what humility isn't. Because whenever you start talking about humility, some people will get upset. I remember when I was doing my undergrad at university, um, I mentioned somebody just in passing as being very humble. The person I was talking to uh, got really upset with me because they thought that I was insulting the other person when actually I meant it as a compliment. And that's because humility is a peculiarly Christian virtue. Greek philosophers who were teaching around the same time as Paul wrote Philippians, they despised humility because to them it implied inadequacy, a lack of dignity, worthlessness. And the same could be said for many people today. The whole self-help movement is about self-realization, focusing on yourself, the exact opposite of humility. And that's actually seeped into the church. Because a lot of what's preached in many Western churches can be described as moralistic therapeutic deism. And yes, that was a term that was coined by sociologists of religion. But basically, that worldview believes that, yeah, there's a God who exists. He created and ordered the world and watches over human life. God wants to be good, nice, and fair to each other. And the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. So, as a result, you have a Christian book distributor that has 50 times as many books on Christian self-realization than on how to follow Jesus on the path of humility. Now, to be fair, part of the problem is that folks tend to confuse humility with humiliation. The dictionary defines humiliation as reducing someone to a lower position in one's own eyes or others' eyes and says it's extremely destructive to one's self-respect or dignity. But humility, from a biblical standpoint, is defined as a freedom from arrogance that grows out of the recognition that all we have and are comes from God. Humiliation is usually something that's done to you by someone else. Perhaps they deliberately say or do something hurtful with your friends around so people think less of you. Perhaps they just consistently put you down in in private and in public until you actually believe that opinion of yourself. Unfortunately, parents can be particularly good at that kind of humiliation. But true humility is actually a defense against humiliation. Jesus died on a cross. Now, crucifixion was designed to be the most demeaning, most humiliating death possible. Yes, it was really painful, but pain wasn't the focus. The focus was on shame. The idea was to so humiliate the victim that they became nothing in the eyes of the crowd looking on. But Philippians 2.8 says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If there's one thing that the Gospels agree on, it's that the crucifixion wasn't something that people did to Jesus against his will. It was something that Jesus chose to face, humbly carrying out his Father's will, so that, as Hebrews says, he could endure the cross, scorning its shame. So humility isn't humiliation, neither is it 
self-hatred. Nowhere in the Bible are we allowed to hate anybody, and that includes ourselves. We're called upon to hate things like injustice, robbery, iniquity, lies, all those kinds of things, but not the people who actually do them. Um, But people often come to hate themselves because of their childhood experiences. Now, I believe that people, I deeply believe that people um, come to know who they are based on what they see reflected in the eyes of people around them. If the eyes around them are full of love and acceptance, they, they learn to love and accept themselves. But the, if all they ever see in the eyes of those around them is hatred and yeah, people despising them, whether it's family members or peers, if all they ever see is that, they come to believe that they're bad people and the right thing to do is to hate themselves. But self-hatred is not humility. In fact, it's a barrier to humility because people who hate themselves <coughs> excuse me, are often obsessed with the fact And so they end up focusing on themselves, once again, the very opposite of humility. Despite the fact that he went willingly to the cross, Jesus didn't hate himself. One of the effects of self-hatred is that you find it difficult to establish and maintain relationships because you believe you're a bad person, therefore you can't believe that people actually want to spend time with you, and so you end up subconsciously sabotaging your relationships. Jesus wasn't like that. People were drawn to him, and he built deep and strong relationships with those around him. He was humble, but he didn't hate himself. So if humility isn't sorry, if humility isn't humiliation or self-hatred, what is it? Well, Romans 12 tells us that humility is an honest assessment of ourselves. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Part of the reason that people were drawn to Jesus was because he knew who he was. Now, in Jesus' case, that led him to say some pretty amazing things. We just studied some of those, those sayings at the beginning of the year in John's Gospel, and he makes claims that sound absolutely outrageous. John 6.48, I am the bread of life. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. How can someone say these kinds of things and still be described as humble? Well, only if they're true. Jesus is not thinking of himself more highly than is appropriate. He knows who he is. What he's saying is true, and it's rooted not so much in himself as in his trust in his Father. Humility is having an honest assessment of yourself. Humility is also having an awareness of God's grace. We start off with a definition of humility that described it as a freedom from arrogance that grows out of the recognition that all we have and are comes from God. So how can Jesus say those things, even if they're true, and not be thought of as arrogant. Because right alongside them, in the same Gospel of John, he says things like this. John 5.19, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. John 5.30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 7.16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. 
8.42, I came from God and now I'm here. I've not come on my own. He sent me. 14.10, the words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Jesus knew that he was dependent upon the Father to accomplish anything. Although John makes it clear right at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is God, it's also clear that he would agree with what Paul says in Philippians, that Jesus, even though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself. Of all the special power and privilege and abilities that come with being God, he became a real human being, and part of being a real human being is being dependent upon God. So humility is rooted in recognizing that we're dependent upon God. Humility also results in a freedom to serve others. Because, because he knew who he was, and because he knew he was dependent upon God the Father to sustain him, Jesus was free to take the place of a servant. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus never thought of seeking his own honor or reputation. One of the things that's always impressed me about Jesus in the Gospels is he never defends himself. Even in, in his trial, he never defends himself. Although he speaks out on behalf of others against injustice, for instance, when he railed against the priests for taking the, the income of the poor, he never argues in his own defense. That's one of the true marks of humility. Jesus knew that he didn't have to look out for himself. He left that to God. And that set him free to do whatever it was the Father had called him to, specifically to go to the cross for all of humanity. And that actually helps us to understand what Paul means in verses 3 and 4 when he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's not saying that we should put ourselves down. That's not humility. He's saying that we should lift others up. And those are two very different things. Jesus never put himself down but he devoted his life to lifting others up. He took the role of a servant, the most humble position in society, in order that he could lift us up into his Father's presence. Humility sets you free to serve others. Remember how Paul begins his description of Jesus' path of humility? He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So how do we cultivate humility in our own lives so that we can be like Jesus and set free to serve? For some of us, the first step towards that is actually to overcome past hurts. Because if you're humble, you're vulnerable. And if you've been hurt in the past, vulnerability is hard to come by. It doesn't look very attractive. It's going to be hard to learn humility. So if that describes you, the first step towards humility is to, to come to an awareness of God's great love for you and his grace towards you. Now, some people have grown up in loving Christian homes and have never doubted God's love for them. For others, it's a bit of a learning curve to learn, to get to the point where they believe that God really does love them. Jesus set off on a path of humility knowing that he was God's beloved son. And we need to get we need to set off on the path of humility from the same place, knowing that we are his beloved children.
We said that humility means having an honest assessment of yourself. And we looked at Jesus' I am statements in John's Gospel. He could make those claims because he knew who he was. So what kind of I am statements can you make? Our church in Canada has a church covenant that um, members agree to when they join. And every year at our annual meeting, we all stand together and repeat the church covenant. And there's various sections about you know, what we believe, how we, we behave, our commitment to each other. One of my favorite pieces is the declaration of our identity in Christ. So we stand up and we declare in loud voices, I am a child of the living God. I am an heir of God and joint heir with Jesus Christ. I am a new creation in Jesus. All things are passed away and all things have become new. I am part of a chosen people, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. I am an overcomer and can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Those are some of our I am statements. They're all rooted in scripture. They're what God says about us. They're what God says about you. And you can humbly declare these things to be true because they don't depend upon you. They depend on what God says about you. Humility is also about having an honest assessment of your gifts and abilities. And that works both ways. Sometimes we have to face the fact that we aren't as gifted in something as we'd like to be, or as perhaps others would like us to be. When I was candidating for this position, I was very clear with the search committee that pastoral care is not my strong point. I'm a teacher first, then an administrator, then maybe a pastoral caregiver. That's why I'm so happy to have the Willises on the pastoral team, because they're great pastors. Likewise, Dindy's gift as and calling as a prayer and someone who mobilizes prayer is a real asset to us all. And Mark's wisdom and understanding of the context here has already saved me from a number of potential blunders. I don't have to be good at everything. No one is. When I was teaching leadership in Afghanistan, I would always encourage people to surround themselves with others who are different from themselves. My mantra has always been, work in your strengths and recruit to your weaknesses. We have to embrace our weaknesses, but we also have to embrace what we're gifted at, know our strengths and work in them. That too is humility. You don't often see blatant arrogance in the church. Most Christians realize that it's not really acceptable to be arrogant. But what you do see a lot of is false humility. That's when, for instance, you say that you're not good at something when you know full well that you are, just so that people will go, no, 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 you are good, you should do this. It's really a way of gaining praise, perhaps a way of gaining affirmation because you've been hurt in the past, but it's still false. It's not, it's not, it's not humble, even if it might appear so on the, front, on the surface. True humility, on the other hand, recognizes that anything good in us is a gift of God's grace in our lives and, give, and gives God the glory. It sets us free from having to worry about what people think about us. Beryl and I met, as I've mentioned before, in a Christian community in the countryside in the Netherlands in the 1970s. And the leader of that community was Floyd McClung. And Floyd, like many strong visionary leaders, um, hurt some people. And every year at uh, Christmas, there would be something we called Gifts to the Lord. So we'd all get together, about 120 of us, in the family room, and we'd um, you know, give gifts 
to the Lord. People would make paintings, uh, write songs. I remember one time somebody um, gave his passport to the Lord as a, a symbol of being willing to go anywhere. And one Christmas, Floyd stood up, and we, had just, we were just new to the community, and um, Floyd stood up and talked about how he was so thankful for, to the Lord for restoring his ministry to him. That you know he he was he was giving it back to the Lord out of gratitude for having it restored, because two years earlier, um, almost all of his all of his team his, his leadership team had left, in anger or hurt, and over the the, the preceding two years, people had, things had been reconciled and the Lord had restored Floyd's ministry to him, and his humility and his willingness to be known, he didn't have to he, he didn't have to do that, he could have kept it to himself. But that event made a big impact upon me of how important it is for those in leadership to be humble. We said that one of the true marks of humility is that you don't have to look out for yourself. You leave that to God. You don't have to push, your own, push to get your own way or your own glory. You can be set free from that. So humility sets you free from pursuing your own agenda, your own career, your own vision. And it frees you up to devote yourself to the vision of the company if you're in um, business or the team if you're in sports or the church. So we talked last week about our hearts, about the very core of our being that only you and God know about. And this, this week we've moved out a little bit, but only a little. Because although humility does make it easier to live with other people, it's primarily about having a true opinion of yourself, one that sets you free from needing others' approval or doing things to gain a positive opinion of yourself. So this week, I'd like you to take some time to sit quietly and to offer up your strengths and your weaknesses to God in worship. You might want to make a list. Here's a couple of questions you might want to use. What has God gifted me with and what has life and experience taught me? That's the first question. What has God gifted me with and what has life and experience taught me? Then the second question is, how can I use these gifts and experiences to lift up others without worrying how it reflects on me? Jesus is our model. If the Lord of creation can humble himself to take on human form and die on a cross for us, then we too can learn to be humble so we can serve others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to for your own benefit. But you humbled yourself, even to death on the cross, that we might become sons and daughters of God. Thank you so much for that, Lord. And we pray that this week you would be working in our hearts to show us what it means to be humble, to walk the path of humility, to put others before ourselves, to entrust our reputation and our name into the safety of your hands. And Lord, as we remain in this attitude of prayer, we want to lift up a few people in the, in the congregation and some other 
um, concerns. Lord, we lift up Linda and Catherine, who continue to have pain. Linda in her eye and Catherine in her wrist. And Lord, we ask that you would open a window of opportunity for them to have the operations that they're waiting for. Lord, that that would be, happen sooner rather than later. Lord, we pray for Vic too, as he has pain in his neck from arthritis. Again, constant pain. Lord, we ask for you to touch him. Touch him, heal him, relieve the pain, we pray. Lord, we pray that this um, coronavirus pandemic would soon be get, at least gotten under control so people can return to, at least return to work and be able to feed their families and pay their rent and all those kinds of things. Lord, we pray for other churches here in Antalya, each of us responding to this new situation in our own individual ways. And we pray, Lord, that you would use the, the ministries there to let people know that they're included, that they're seen, that they're heard, that each, each church would be uh, a, strength, a source of strength to their members and that they in turn would be strength to their, their friends and neighbours. And Lord, we pray for our friends and neighbours during this month of fasting that you would reveal yourself to them. Lord, as hearts are particularly soft at this time, would you speak into lives, Lord, and lead people to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.